Good morning, church. Uh, we're going to continue uh, this morning. Uh, over the last two or three weeks, we've been in a series on prayer. And the things we've talked about have been loosely based on this book. How to Pray, a simple guide for normal people by Pete Gregg. Now, I know that last week I highly recommended the book, and I'm going to do it again. It's, uh, it's not remotely dry. It's written very well. The author writes from the heart. It contains a lot of inspiring quotes, a lot of really moving anecdotes and, and stories. So I would highly recommend it. So we're continuing in that series today. So everything that we talk about this morning, we're going to talk about against the backdrop of powerful prayer. How do we develop and maintain a powerful prayer life? Now, you may recall that last Sunday, we looked at four things. We had four points. We had powerful prayer, pause, and persevere. And you may recall that I perhaps might have congratulated myself a little bit on the fact that I'd managed to have four points all beginning with the same letter, because that kind of ticks all the boxes in Preaching 101. Well, possibly uh, God might have felt that I was gloating a little bit last week, so this week I have three points that I want us to consider as we consider prayer, but there's not a common letter amongst them. The three things I want us to consider this morning are fight, yield, and cleanse, all in the context of prayer. Fight, yield, cleanse. I have to confess that literally, literally at the 11th hour, I thought I could perhaps have changed fight, yield, cleanse to battle, bow, and bathe. But I decided that would just be me being a little too clever for myself. So this morning, we're going to continue in our series on prayer, and we're going to look at these three ideas, fight, yield, cleanse. Before we do so, shall we commit this to the Lord? Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that now as we consider your word, your Holy Spirit will open our understanding and minister to each one of us, that each of us could move closer to you through your word. In your precious name, amen. So, again, in the context of developing a powerful prayer life, what I want us to think about firstly this morning is fight, is that we have to be prepared and ready to fight. Paul wrote in his letter to the church at Ephesus these words which have come to be very, very well known. Verse, chapter 6 of Ephesians, starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Paul is pulling no punches there in Ephesians chapter 6. He goes on in that passage to say, we must arm ourselves. We must put on the armor of God. Why? Because we're in a battle. We're not battling against men or women. He says we are battling against spiritual darkness, against evil powers in this world. And he says that we need to understand that we are in a battle. Those of you who've known me any amount of time know that I do not accept the premise that if a joke is old, it means you can't keep telling it. Because I'm reminded here of a story I'm sure you've heard before about the two Englishmen who were chatting and one says to the other, you know, my great-great-great-grandfather died at the Battle of Waterloo. And his friend said, oh, really, he was a soldier. And he said, no, he wasn't a soldier. He was camping in the field next door and he just went over to complain about the noise. Because obviously, in a scenario like that, you wander into the middle of a battlefield by mistake. You're not prepared. You have no armor. You have no expectation that you're going to be in a fight. You've not been able to prepare. You've not been able to set yourself mentally or emotionally to prepare for the battle. And so you are effectively a sitting duck if you stroll into a battlefield by mistake. So as Christians, when we're looking at how we pray and how we develop a powerful prayer life, we need to remember that in order to be able to pray successfully, we have to be prepared to fight. Because Paul says we are fighting against rulers, against wickedness, not against flesh and blood. C.S. Lewis said this, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. No neutral ground in the universe. We are in the center of a battle between God and Satan, between the forces of good and evil. Listen to these words from Martin Luther, the great German reformer responsible for the Reformation. He said this, we must all practice violence. He's talking about prayer. We must all practice violence. And remember that he who prays is fighting against the devil and the flesh. Satan is opposed to the church. The best thing we can do, therefore, is to put our fists together and pray. Those are remarkable words. I mean, the universal sign for prayer and the emoji on my smartphone for prayer is this. But Martin Luther is saying when we come to pray, we should put our fists together and pray. I, st I studied a lot about Martin Luther when I was, you know, in my, at school in England, and I became quite fascinated by the whole story of the Reformation. 
And how has he set himself up against the Catholic churches? He was protected by the German princes. And at one period in his life, he was effectively under house arrest in a castle in Germany. And you can go and visit that castle now, and one day I hope to be able to do that. But it is said that one night, as he was studying, he became so aware of the fact that the devil was resisting him, that he, he lost his temper and he hurled his inkwell at the wall, believing that's where the devil was. And I believe if you go to that castle today, you can see the remains of the ink stain on the wall. I'm sure that it is discreetly touched up every night by the castle staff to maintain the flow of tourists. But it's a famous story that is indicative of how he felt about the devil. Martin Luther knew that when he set out to accomplish things for Christ, the devil was opposed to that and would seek to do whatever he could to obstruct him and bring him down and render his efforts futile. And that's the same with us. It's why Paul writes like this. And what is interesting is, he's writing here in Ephesians to who? He's writing to the church at Ephesus. Well, the city of Ephesus during Paul's time was, if you like, a hotbed of sorcery and idolatry. And there were a lot of evil forces at work in that city. We know that specifically because if you turn to Acts chapter 19... Acts chapter 19, we're actually told a story about what happened while Paul was in the city. Remember, he's writing in Ephesians 6, saying we battle not against flesh and blood, but against uh, principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness. He's writing about that later, when he's writing to the church at Ephesus. But in Acts chapter 19, we read that when he was actually in the city of Ephesus, before that letter was written... We read this in Acts chapter 19 and verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Now some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And I know about Paul. But who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. And he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So in Ephesus, there was evidence of widespread idolatry, widespread sorcery. And we have this very chilling little story tucked away in Acts chapter 11 that some Jewish high priests decided to try, they'd seen Paul casting out demons in the name of Christ and they tried to replicate that. But the demon actually answered them and said, I know who Jesus is 
And I know who Paul is, but you I do not know. And he rose up and attacked them. And the result of all of this was it it, it caused such a scene in the city that if you read on in Acts chapter 11, all of the people who were involved in magic and this kind of thing, they all brought their magic books into the town and burnt them because what they had seen had frightened them. It's why as a Christian, we need to stay away from things like Ouija boards or anything like that or going to a seance, any of these things, because they open a portal into a world that is very real, very dark, very dangerous. We need to understand that we are in a battle. Paul himself knew about this. He'd written about it. He'd seen it in Ephesus. He'd written about it to the Ephesians. He wrote about it again in his first letter to the church at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 17 and 18. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly, I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan stopped us. Paul actually says that he'd been driven out of Thessalonica. He wanted to get back because he was concerned about the Christians in Thessalonica. And it says he he wanted to come back. He longed to come back. He tried to come back many times, but Satan stopped him. So Paul was very aware that as a follower of Christ, he was engaged in a battle. And he saw the things that happened to him in the light of that battle. He was prepared, he was ready, he was serious. And so for us, as Christians, when we come to pray, perhaps we remember Martin Luther and we come and we pull our fists together and we pray because we understand that we are praying against evil. We are praying against wickedness. We pray that the things we are seeking to accomplish for God will succeed despite the attacks and the obstruction that is out there. The Bible says the devil is like a roaring lion roaming around seeking who he can devour. The story from Ephesus tells us that the demons, the demons know who is in Christ and who is not in Christ. Even if we don't realize we're in a battle, they know we're in the battle if we're followers of Christ. So we need to be prepared to fight in our prayer life. We need to understand we have an adversary. And so guess what? We need to take it seriously. It's not a joke. It's not a hobby. It's not something we do if we've got five or ten minutes to spare at the end of the day. Prayer is a serious business. So we have to fight The second thing that sometimes we have to do in our prayer life is sometimes we have to yield. We have to yield. Now, this is 
a difficult thing to talk about as Christians. And sometimes we brush it under the carpet and move on. But the reality is, when you talk about yielding in prayer and being prepared to yield, to give way, to bow, it's difficult to talk about this as Christians because it effectively concerns two truths which collide. And when those two truths collide, the impact of that collision, if we're not careful, can cause us serious damage and can really shake our faith. What are these two truths that sometimes collide? Well, the first truth is this. The Bible is absolutely clear that intercessory prayer, in other words, praying about a situation or a person and praying in a manner we're asking God to change that situation in some way. We might be praying for this country that the people heal. We might be praying for a sick relative. We might be praying for all kinds of things. That is intercessory prayer, not praying for ourselves, but praying about another situation. And the Bible is clear, clear, clear that intercessory prayer does change circumstances. It encourages us to pray, pray, and keep praying, like we saw last week with the story of the judge and the widow who kept coming to him and asking for justice. And her perseverance and persistence caused him to change his mind, and he granted her request. And we could spend hours going through the Bible page by page and lifting out examples where somebody has stepped into the gap and has prayed about a particular situation and God has answered that prayer and changed that situation. It's absolutely abundantly clear that that is a great truth of the Bible, that if there's a situation that you are worried or concerned about, the Bible encourages you to pray and pray and pray. And the Bible gives us evidence, more evidence than we can possibly need, that intercessory prayer does change circumstances. Just four examples that I literally plucked at random. Moses, Exodus 11. The Israelites are in battle against the Amalekites. Moses stands and raises his hands in prayer. And while he's praying, the Israelites start to win the battle. But he gets tired, and as he gets tired, he lowers his arms. And Exodus 11 tells us the Amalekites immediately start to gain the upper hand. So others come alongside Moses, and they support his arms, because when his arms go up again, the Israelites begin to win the battle again. Intercessory prayer. Moses is praying over that situation, and his prayers are effective. Moses also, Genesis chapter 18, when God tells him he's going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses, if you read the passage, he actually argues, he bargains with God. He says, well, look, if, the, if there are 50 people there who are good people, will you save the city? And he keeps bargaining it down. He bargains it down, I think, to as low as 10. He's able to engage with God and change what was going to happen. 
Exodus 32, also Moses. The Israelites have built a golden calf. They've started to worship it. And God is so angry at this that he says to Moses, he literally says to Moses, stand back because I'm going to destroy these people. I'm done with them. I've had enough. This is it. And Moses steps into the breach and he prays and he says, God, no, you've brought these people so far. You've done so much for them. Your name has, is known worldwide because of the things you've done. You can't destroy these people. And God changes his mind. We see it again in Isaiah 38, the story of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah is seriously ill. And Isaiah comes to him and says to him, you are not going to recover from this sickness. And Isaiah leaves the room having given Hezekiah this message. And we read in the passage that Hezekiah prays in anguish with God. And he says, please, Lord, give me some more time. And we read in the passage that before Isaiah has even got outside the building, God says to Isaiah, go back Tell Hezekiah, I've heard his prayer. I've given him 15 more years. We could go on. We could go on and on and on with examples of powerful intercessory prayer that change circumstances. And they are an encouragement to us to pray. Whatever it is in our situation, in the world around us, that is causing us concern, we are encouraged to bring it before God and to pray and to pray and to pray. Leaving politics aside, this country desperately needs healing. It needs people to come back together and to heal. How do we do that? We pray about that. Perhaps if every church in the land coordinated an hour a week or a day a week where every church prayed without any politics, but simply prayed that there would be a spirit of healing across this nation that would bring us together. Who knows what might happen? We are encouraged as Christians to pray for intercessory prayer, to engage with the things that concern us, and those prayers will bring change. What's the second truth that collides with that? The first great truth is... We are encouraged to pray because intercessory prayer changes things. The difficult truth that sometimes, sometimes, not always, but sometimes collides with that is that sometimes for whatever reason, God is not able to answer our prayer in the way that we want it answered. And that's a difficult thing as Christians to talk about or to acknowledge. In this book, he tells a story in this book about how Pete Gregg was invited to speak at a church. He'd never been to that church before. It was a big church. And he went and he stood and he preached. And he preached about intercessory prayer. And when he finished preaching, he felt strange because he felt that the congregation had seemed a little flat, that they hadn't seemed to engage. 
And one of the elders came up to him and said, thank you very much, that was a powerful message. And he said to him, you know, I'm, it seemed odd to me the way it was received. It just seemed a little flat. And the elder was silent for a little while. And then he said, what you don't know is that the pastor's wife passed away a couple of months ago. And she'd been sick for a year. And the whole church had organized itself to pray. To pray that she would be healed. And when she passed away, it kind of knocked the stuffing out of everybody. Every one of us, I'm sure, can, if we've been a Christian for any amount of time, can remember occasions when we have prayed for something and God has answered our prayer in a remarkable, powerful way. But I guess also that those of us who have been Christians for any length of time may also recall certain occasions when we have prayed for something and for some reason God did not answer that prayer in the way that we wanted him to answer it. Paul himself was very familiar with this. He wrote to the church in Corinth in his second letter to them, 2 Corinthians verse 12. We read in verses 7 to 10. This is after he's described the vision that he saw of Jesus and heaven at the time of his salvation. And he says this, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul had some kind of physical impediment. We don't know exactly what it is. Some people think it might have been to do with his leg. Other people think it might have been to do with his eyesight. We know when he was converted on the road to Damascus, he was blinded. And then it says the scales fell from his eyes. So perhaps it was that. I don't know. But whatever it was, it was a physical problem Paul had to live with. Paul describes it that it was a torment. So this was something that really tormented him on a day-to-day -day basis. He says he pleaded with God to take it away. He says he pleaded with God three times to take it away. But God didn't take it away. He said, I'm going to give you my grace, my strength, which will allow you to cope with it. That was Paul. You know, there's another powerful example of this. In Matthew chapter 26, which was Jesus himself. Matthew 26 and verse 36. Just before Jesus is taken in the garden. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. He began to be sorrowful 
and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. You know, read those words. Read and read and read those words. This is the King of Kings. This is Jesus, the Son of God. And he is, his heart is full of sorrow. He's under so much stress, in so much pain. He knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to be taken and he's going to be beaten. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be crucified. He knows that is going to happen. And he's falling on his face. And the humanity in him is crying out to God and saying, Father, please... Let's do this another way. Please don't make me go through this. Luke tells us that he was that stressed that he sweat great drops of blood. That is a genuine medical condition. Hematidrosis or something similar. It's, it's caused by extreme stress. So let's be in no doubt. Jesus here is on his face He's praying to his father. He knows what's coming. He, every fiber of his humanity is saying, please don't let this happen. Please, let's find another way to do this. But then he steps back and says, nevertheless, this is your will. I yield to it. And I will go through it. We have no finer example than that. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, the words that we actually say the words, Thy will be done. And sometimes, 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 all we can do if a prayer isn't being answered in the way that we want it to is to trust God. To say, your will be done. And to yield to him. Lastly, and very briefly. We've seen we need to fight. We've seen we need to yield. We need to cleanse. We need to cleanse ourselves. You see, in the Lord's Prayer, which we all know, which we've all recited so many times, it says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Or it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Some theologians have said that this is actually the hardest part of the prayer to pray. Why? Because there's a duality in here. There's a reciprocity in here. You see, it does not say, forgive us today our sins, stop, period, 
we will forgive those who sinned against us. These are not two disconnected things. It says quite clearly, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. In other words, what it's really saying is, the level of forgiveness that we can expect as we confess our sins is, is, is linked to the degree of forgiveness we are going to extend to others. You can't get one without giving the other. It's a fundamental founding principle of the English legal system. It's, the words are, he who comes to equity or law, he who comes to equity must come with clean hands. It's a founding principle of the English legal system, that if you are going to bring a case and you are going to seek redress for something, you yourself cannot be guilty. You yourself must be blameless. You can't come to the law and claim redress while you are doing terrible things here. We have to forgive others if we are going to expect God to forgive us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I used to think that that referred to eternity, to the afterlife. If we're pure in heart, we shall see God. And it does. But it also applies to today. It also applies to the present. Because what it's saying is that blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. So the purer our heart, the more clearly we can see God. The purer our heart, the more sensitive we are to the Holy Spirit, the more we are able to see God, the more we are able to hear God. It links the purity of our heart to the quality of our relationship with God. Just as the Lord's Prayer links our forgiveness from God to us forgiving others. So, we need to make sure we cleanse ourselves before we come to prayer. Because if we don't, our prayers won't have the power we need. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has a clean heart and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. Anybody have a bath or a shower this past week? Of course you did. Can you imagine coming to church when the restrictions are gone and we can pack the house again? Imagine coming and, and fellowshipping with a couple of hundred people who've not had a bath or a shower for a year. Wouldn't be good, would it? We need to bath. We need to shower. We need to wash ourselves to wash away the dirt and the grime and the stuff that we accumulate as we go through this world. Because if we don't, it builds up. We need to wash it off. We need to clean it off on a regular basis. You don't take a shower once and then take one two years later. You've got to take one on a regular basis because the grime sticks and it clogs up and we have to take it away. It's the same principle with an oil change. We take our car to have an oil change. Why? Because the oil that's circulating around the engine is picking up dirt and grime and debris and eventually this stuff sticks and it begins to thicken and it gums up the workings of the engine and it significantly affects the, the performance of the engine. We understand that. 
So in the same way as we take a shower, we take our car to the shop and get the oil changed. When they take out the dirty, cruddy oil, they put in clean, fresh oil. The early pilgrim fathers understood this. They said that they would keep a short account with God. So at the end of every night, they would clear their account with God. The Jesuits did the same with a prayer of examine. That every night they would sit and they would look back on the day that they'd had. We have to do this to cleanse ourselves spiritually if we want to be powerful and effective in our prayer. Every night, before we go to sleep, we can take a few moments before God to review the day. Flick back through the things we've done today. Are there any things we've done today which now, in the quiet, before God, we accept could have angered him or disappointed him? There's only the two of us in the conversation. If there is anything like that, we bring it to him and we confess it and we ask for forgiveness. Secondly, is there anything during the day that we could have done but didn't, and our failure to do it could have angered him or disappointed him. If the answer is yes, again, we confess it, we ask for forgiveness. And when we finish that prayer, we've cleansed ourselves. And then the prayers we want to bring for the things we want to ask him for will have more power. Fight, yield, cleanse. Fight, why? Because we're in a battle. We're in spiritual warfare. And prayer is an integral part of that. If we don't come to prayer knowing we're in a battle, that there are opposing forces seeking to slow us down or bring us down, our prayer life can't be effective. We've got to be serious about our prayer because we're in a fight. Number two, yield. Yes, God wants us to pray. He wants us to pray to change situations. Sometimes. We need to understand that his will needs to be done, even if it doesn't align with what we want. And lastly, we need to be clean. We can't be powerful in prayer if we're not clean. And we need to clean ourselves every evening, at the end of every day, so that we have a pure heart. We can see God and we can properly engage with him. These are keys to a powerful life of prayer. Amen. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the power of prayer. We ask, Lord, you'd help us to remember that we do have an enemy. There is a roaring lion that seeks to devour. Lord, help us to engage, Lord, in the battle that we're in. Help us, Lord, sometimes to yield to acknowledge that your will needs to be done if sometimes, Lord, your will doesn't align with what we want. And Father, we pray you'd help each one of us to clean ourselves spiritually every day that we may be powerful in prayer. In your precious name, amen.